Oh no worries. I thought it was like I thought it was some diabolical little <laughs> virus where they just they don't you know it, it doesn't shut your computer down. It just gradually drives you crazy, right? Just one yeah, little, tiny yeah. little thing after another. Right, paranoia can really uh, take over, especially when you're thinking and talking about Russia. It's uh, we're we're all susceptible to it. Welcome to the Live Drop. I'm Mark Valley. My guest is retired Brigadier General Kevin Ryan from the Belfer Center at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. He first started studying Russian at West Point. He served as a foreign area officer of the United States Military Liaison Mission in Berlin. He was a defense attache to Moscow during the 9-11 attacks. But I wanted to talk to him about the Elb Group. It's a form of Track 2 diplomacy that he founded and directs, consisting of retired military and intelligence generals from Russia and the U.S., they meet to manage and resolve conflict, explore future challenges and solutions. We talked about cyber, Crimea, space, and with his experience in Russian cooperation, General Ryan offers some suggestions for the Trump-Putin summit coming up next week. He mentioned one negotiation tip. Americans like to box, but the Russians are wrestlers. you got to maintain contact. Begin transmission now. Yeah, you were the military attache in Moscow. What years were that? was that? I was assigned to be the defense head of state, which is the senior military representative in Moscow, both a representative of the Secretary of Defense, but also of the Defense Intelligence Agency to the Russian government in 2001. I arrived there in August of 2001. You know, when, when I arrived there, the, the mission that I had in my portfolio was to uh, make the Russians understand why we were withdrawing from the anti-ballistic missile treaty at the time and why we didn't want to negotiate with them anymore on nuclear arms deals and why they were a second-rate country and we were the lone superpower. And within a month after I got there, 9-11 happened, uh, the whole world was turned upside down for everybody, and the relationship uh, between the United States and Russia was turned upside down, and Russia was a big help to the United States, at least in the initial year or two after 9-11. So my, uh, my time there in Moscow was uh, um, a real experience in, and I uh, had great access into the Russian uh, government, um, not, not at the president level, not at the Putin level, but at the minister of defense level and the chief of general staff level. Um, I could meet with them anytime I needed to, and they often called uh, me and trying to help coordinate things with our defense intelligence agency and with our defense department. I didn't realize that the military attache was also the representative of the defense intelligence. Yeah. Uh, the, the senior defense or military intelligence position in uh, Moscow is the defense attache, and he's an official representative so that they can exchange intelligence if they need to or discuss intelligence issues. Um, it's a similar setup to the Central Intelligence Agency, which has a senior officer there who is a, uh, they call it a declared person to the Russian government. Um, and uh, so while it may not be common knowledge or public knowledge, um, whoever that person is at the uh, embassy is known you know, the, he goes over to the Russian counterparts and he says, look, I'm with the Central Intelligence Agency 
And uh, I want you to know that in case we need to exchange intelligence or do something together, uh, I'm your conduit. So you were there at a pretty interesting time. I mean, you said you, you know, you were you were there when you were letting the Russians know we we're pulling out of ABM, and as you said, why they're a second-rate country. I'm sure you probably didn't say it like that. But then after 9/11, you had to suddenly turn heels and say, "Hey, we need help to fight terrorism." Right, and and uh, Russia had a special connection to Afghanistan, of course, having fought a war there for ten years, and so we literally uh, began. First of all, we began by taking phone calls from the Ministry of Defense, the chief of the general staff and um, uh, the minister of defense were on the phone to me at the embassy within uh, an hour or so after the uh, after the second plane hit um, uh, or the third plane hit the Pentagon. So that, must have been uh, the e- that must have been sometime in the evening in Russia at that point? Yeah, it was getting close to the evening time. And... Uh, we actually um, uh, we were watching on TV, not certain what was happening initially, and then, of course, at the same time, everyone else was realizing that this these were attacks. Uh, right. Shortly after, we got the phone calls, and the Russian uh, senior Russian military were saying, "Look, we we offer you whatever help you need. Um, uh, we're we're standing down our aviation exercises, especially in in the far north." Um, yeah, because we don't want you, you know, worried or nervous about our aircraft in the air. Um, and within days, Putin came out and publicly offered to uh, help with intelligence, also to help by allowing transit over Russian airspace and ground to get supplies to any kind of operation that might be going on forward in Afghanistan. And the third step was that he offered uh, help in rescuing any pilots, U.S. pilots that might be shot down or might have to crash over uh, Afghanistan. And uh, all of these things were, you know, uh, very helpful uh, initial steps. And and the U.S.-Russian uh, relationship shifted quite a bit. The U.S. was uh, glad and grateful to get the help. And... Um, uh, sent me and others over to the Russian counterparts, former uh, Russian commanders of operations in Afghanistan. We we got maps. We talked about terrain. We talked about uh, what to watch for and what to look out for, and we passed all that back to our own uh, forces. They must have had a lot of information about the Mujahideen. We did. We did. You know, the, the U.S. military had very uh, relatively little information about what they were getting into in Afghanistan. I recall that there was uh, uh, really only one book that had ever been published uh, on the military, the Russian military experience and operations there, or two. It was called The Bear Looked Over the Mountain, and it was by uh, Les Grau, who was working at the uh, at Fort Leavenworth. He had written two books that, that basically sat gathering dust on many people's shelves, but then they became bestsellers amongst the military people within within weeks uh, as we tried to gather information from all sources, and that's we were just one of those sources. So it seems to me that um, this was a bit of a surprise. Uh, it seemed like they, well, I, I, always, I always picture the Russians, you know, meeting together and kind of, dark smoky rooms and talking over you know how this is going to be best for russia and what should we do and so forth but this sounds like it was more of a 
like a reflexive response? I think so. I think there was genuine um, uh, interest in in helping the United States against what Russians, Russian military and political leaders had been saying was a um, a common global threat, which was the Islamic extremism. You know, the Russians have been battling this for over a hundred years, if you want to go back to, uh, you know, the, the 1800s uh, in the Caucasus. But more recently, they, you know, beginning in uh, Afghanistan, part of that was about political regimes, communism versus, you know, uh, Western. But it was also about uh, drug trades and Islamic extremists uh, who were connected uh, all the way from the Uyghurs in uh, Western China through uh, the stands, the you know Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, so on, the Georgia, Chechnya, Ingushetia, all these places that Russia was either as the Soviet Union was responsible for, or later as Russia was concerned about in in a neighbor fashion, mm-hmm. and and now the United States was attacked by this the threat. And I think the Russians right away said to themselves, look, now the U.S. will understand. They will see what we've been talking about, and we need to we need to help them because they can help us. Well, just to be a bit of a cynic, though, was this an opportunity for Putin to be a little bit more aggressive? Yeah, it was it was an it was an opportunity to enlist the United States in against a threat that has been bothering them for mm-hmm. decades. You know, so in that regard self-serving yes but uh um you know when when we are sitting there looking at a common foe uh we both are willing to usually willing to put something aside put our differences aside in order to you know take care of this common foe we did it in world war ii and uh we've done it on certain other things you know we Mm-hmm. We've done it against uh, nuclear proliferation and nuclear terrorism, and, and uh, this was another opportunity. So literally you were at the table with Russians and Americans working together. Yeah, I, I was there for a very interesting, for example, conversation when uh, Tommy Franks, who was the Central Command commander, uh, the four-star general who mm-hmm. whose operators and uh, uh, military went into Afghanistan in the fall of 2001, did all those operations. And by the spring of 2002, most of us were thinking, wow, you know, we've we've basically accomplished what we needed to accomplish. The, the Taliban are on the run. The Al-Qaeda is on the run. Uh, the, um, the, the Afghan government has been turned back over to other entities and and we were in this space between Iraq and Afghanistan, basically, where we we looked like an invincible and very smart military. And General Franks came to uh, Moscow uh, basically to make a report to our partner in this effort. And uh, he sat down at the big, long table at the Ministry of Defense, and opposite him was uh, Minister of Defense Sergei Ivanov at the time and the chief of the general staff and all the U.S. and Russian guys on either side of the table. And uh, Minister Ivanov, who spoke and speaks excellent English, he asked uh, General Franks, well, so tell me what you've seen in in, uh, Afghanistan. 
General Frank said, well, mostly what we've seen, mostly what we've been killing are Uzbeks, Chechens, Uyghurs, and some Taliban. And the Russians on the other side were smiling ear to ear because this is exactly what they have been trying to, had been trying to tell the United States was that all of these groups or had, had Islamic extremist elements in them and they were all coordinating and working together. And for the U.S. forces to be killing enemy forces, which were basically from all these territories, underscored the Russian position that we were facing a global uh, Islamic extremist threat. Right. So they were sitting on the porch watching us. I know this sounds insensitive, but mowing mowing their lawn in a sense. Exactly. Before that, were we critical of the Russians for... You know, drawing a hard line against Muslim extremists? Well, we we were uh, critical about the first war in Chechnya and right. the second. We were critical about uh, their tactics and the amount of um, killing, the reported atrocities, uh, the treatment of, uh, let's call them uh, the peaceful elements in those uh, territories and uh, areas. But, you know, the United States was not as critical as European countries. We, I think in the intelligence community, we saw some of the uh, things which were highlighted after 9-11. We saw some of those things. We saw that what Russia was battling wasn't all just, uh, you know, nationalist uh, forces in these regions looking for autonomy. There were a lot of foreign Islamic extremists and foreign support. And, and so uh, our criticism was there. It was mostly along the human rights lines and not so much really along the ultimate underlying issue, which was that they were facing these uh, terrorist groups. Let's get into the Elb Group a little bit. I, I did want to ask you one other thing. I was looking at your, your bio, uh, associate fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School, director of the Elb Group. Uh, but in 1995-96, you headed the Moscow office for the POW-MIA Commission for Missing Americans in the former Soviet states. I didn't know there were any missing Americans in former Soviet states. Yeah, that, that, that's a uh, fascinating uh, example of cooperation between the two countries, which has remained in place since uh, its founding under President Bush the first and uh, Yeltsin. Um, in a, uh, going back, President Yeltsin came to the United States, spoke before Congress, and during his speech, he said that you know uh, Americans had at one time been in the Gulag in Russia, and uh, and he said and may even still be there today. And this, I think, all the congressmen woke up wow. <laughs> and heard that comment in uh, in the halls of Congress. And soon after, they formed a joint presidential commission, U.S. and Russian, where the Russians put some people in America at the embassy, and we put some people in the in Moscow at the embassy. And we began looking into the idea that some that we might each have some information about missing Russians. Mm-hmm. They were we were chasing down um, rumors about you know uh, people being spirited out of uh, Korea or Vietnam and held in camps or, uh, you know, Manchurian candidate type things, anything along those lines. To, it Then it began to be more broadly uh, focused on or more broadly uh, looked at that any American, whether it was associated with the Cold War or with one of the 
you know, uh, wars in which both U.S. and Soviet troops were fighting. Any American that might be or might have been in the gulag or in, in Russia against their will. So, so for example, Americans who were uh, captured by Germans, put into um, German prison camps in the east, liberated by Soviet troops, and then in the process of, you know, interviewing all the prisoners, they would say, okay, I have an American... And many of those Americans were repatriated back to the United States through the Soviet Union and out through the ports in Odessa and the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. We traveled all over Russia. It was a fascinating tour of duty for me. We go into small villages and towns around Russia asking for, looking for, running down rumors of Americans being there, looking in the graveyards, talking to people, being invited into their homes. And it was, besides the the very, you know, uh, privilege of doing that work for America and Americans, it was also a privilege to get to meet real Russians, you know, the people in the, we would call it the Midwest, you know, the the heart and soul of Russia, not about politics, not about, you know, the the issue of the day, but about long-term, you know, relations or values, things that had happened to them. It was a true eye-opening experience. So what did you find out about the well, it's interesting to talk to you because I can I have a list of twenty things that I want to ask you, and uh, I'm sure, and sure. I'm on number two, and I'm like digging into number two. Uh, it, I think it's fascinating. What did you find out about the about going into the Russian heartland that you didn't know? What what is it about these people? Or I think one of the first things I that was driven home was something I knew in my head, but I didn't I hadn't actually experienced it full force, and that is that the for the for the Russian population, World War Two and the uh, the losses of World War II are still a current event, uh, whereas for the United States, more or less, we've moved on uh, a long time ago, and we we don't think about it in those terms. Uh, um, in, in these little villages, I would knock on the door. They would say, oh, you're an American. We've never seen an American. I'd say, I'm looking, running down a story about Joe's, John Smith, who might have been here. And then after a while, they would tell me whatever they know. Then they would say, you know, one first thing, I can't believe that the United States would send you all this way for one American. Then they would tell you why, because because for them, they had aunts and uncles and grandparents and, and family members who were who, who had died in the war, whose remains they still didn't know where they were. Mm-hmm. And, and they um, uh, they didn't have any hope to go find those remains. It wasn't a question that they, this was the thing I was learning, it wasn't a question that they didn't care. Some people say, well, they have this uh, Asian blood in them from the Mongol invasions and they don't care about human life the way the Westerners do. This was things that, that we were taught in, uh, in the military schools and, and many people would uh, say those kinds of things. I think that's baloney. These people would cry in front of me, a stranger, about their relatives who they hadn't seen since the war. It was just the pure scale of loss that just, it was unactionable, however you would say. Right, you got it, exactly. They just couldn't get there from here, and they knew that. And They didn't lament or they didn't begrudge the United States the the ability to go do this, look for an individual person up in the mountains in some place, great for you, America. But 
but they opened up about their own situation, which is the context is completely different. So you're you're in, so they would they were getting emotional with you talking about this. Yeah, yeah, they would. You know, I'm Catholic, and, and one of the things we do is we go to confession, and mm-hmm. uh, it's always kind of better if you don't know the priest. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Catholic too. I know what you're talking about. I'd say. And uh, for them, especially if they know your I parents was, too, I'm like, oh, I'm not going in that yeah. one. <laughs> exactly. So maybe I was for them a person that they knew they would never see again, and um, and yet somebody who was interested and could listen to them. I, you know, the the Russian, uh, the Russian, the American military taught me uh, Russian language. Uh, you know, taught me about enough about Russia that I could at least get around, mm-hmm. and that allowed me to work without an interpreter, which you know puts you at much more personal level with people. That's amazing that you speak fluent Russian. I wanted to back up a little bit. You're from the Midwest. What 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 was your what what started your I think I asked you this before we first met in um in Berlin a few years ago and I remember asking yeah. you but what drew what was your interest in Russian culture Russian language the country well, I went to West Point straight out of high school in 1972 the Soviet Union Russia basically was our number one threat in the world we were we were coming out of the Vietnam War. It hadn't quite ended yet, but all through that and even beyond and before, the Soviet Union was the number one threat. And I, going to the military academy, I, I thought, well, why don't I take this language, this Russian language? It's, it's got different symbols. It's, a, it's almost like a code. It's, you know, then I could you know, actually listen and read and, and think about what the Russians are saying for myself. And I, I was doing it as a, as a way of... of a part of my training for what I was going to do when I joined the military. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's fascinating. It's exotic. It's even today, it's exotic. I mean, the, it covers eight time zones. It's the largest country in the world that they have so many geological and natural and cultural things that are different from us. And the opportunity to kind of learn about those things, in addition to being prepared to fight against them, that was a, a a combination that I that interested me. So I started that, and then that eventually brought me to Berlin. At the time, it was still a divided city, East and West, Soviet Union, Warsaw Pact on one side, U.S., NATO on the other, um, East Germany still basically run by the Soviets. The Soviets had three to 400,000 troops in just in East Germany alone, we had a similar number, I think, well, we had up to 700,000, I think, at some point in, in Europe, uh, all during the Cold War. And, and so <clears throat> one of the jobs that w- existed out of Berlin was a liaison job. This was a job where American, not only American, but the French and the British, too, had, had liaison offices, which were uh, charged with being the conduit, the communications between the command of the Russian group of forces in East Germany and the U.S. military based in Europe, which was headquartered out of uh, West Germany. So we would um, we were called the U.S. Military Liaison Mission, and we had the right to travel all over East Germany, except for some restricted areas, and to uh, basically keep track of Russian training operations. I see. I say Russian. I mean Soviet training operations gunnery, uh, movements, uh, rail movements, and so on. The idea being that we would 
go out and, and be there when these things were happening, come back and report on them, and tell the U.S. side that, hey, this is just a training exercise, or here's the units that we're training, so that people in the West would not think that they were actually going, getting set to go to war, you know. Recently, we've had these snap exercises in Russia, you know, and everybody's complained about them because large numbers of troops form up suddenly and they, they do their training. They move up to their western border. So it was called a snap exercise? Well, that's what, that's the, the term? That's what we're calling them today. You know, the idea that everybody's in their barracks and a phone call comes in at five in the morning and says, everybody move to your units and and load up for war and then you you get to your unit within a few hours you've done this yourself you know the Mm -hmm. drill and you uh, uh, move to a a deployment location with your unit all set with your ammunition and then maybe you move on to a, a war position and then if it's a war you get ordered attack in this direction or defend in this direction and so uh, when units are doing the first two or three of those steps, you don't know maybe if they're going to go all the way to the fourth and fifth step. Right. And we call those snap exercises today. Um, I don't know what, I don't remember what we called them back then, but that's what they were if the Russians were moving large tank units, loading them up on rails or moving them out on the roads. We wanted to know, are they going to the inner German border? Are they preparing to attack the West? Or are they just going to tank gunnery for the uh, for the fall? I wanted to get into the Elb Group, and when I first heard about this, you first told me about this. I immediately pictured like a Robert Ludlum novel. Maybe you could talk why it's called the Elb Group and what it is. Well, I can remember that the first time that you and I met was outside of Ludwig Blust in uh, mm-hmm. what was then Eastern Germany, but uh, we met after the Germanys had been united a couple of years ago. You were kind enough and interested enough in the, in an event that, that I was going to as uh, the president of the U.S. Military Liaison Mission Association, which is the veterans of that mission. And we were there to remember uh, uh, Major Nick Nicholson, who had uh, been killed by the Soviets as he was out doing his uh, look around at, at Russian and Soviet uh, equipment and personnel. He was killed outside of Ludwigslust, and we we try to do a memorial service there when we can around the time of his uh, killing. You were you were there with us. That was very kind of you, and and uh, and we began talking about the Elba group, which which I had just come from. This is a group of retired U.S. and Russian military and intelligence officers, mostly from the CIA, DIA. Uh, or Defense Intelligence Agency, and their counterparts on the Russian side, the FSB and the and the GRU. We don't have anybody from the SVR, which is their CIA, but but the, we do have somebody from their FSB, which is like their FBI. In addition, we had um, military leaders, people like John Abizade, the former CENTCOM commander, General, General Buster Hagenbeck, former commander of Mountain Division, 10th Mountain Division, we had uh, on the Russian side, um, former Minister of Interior, General Kulikov, a former head of the uh, Russian um, nuclear weapons, uh, General Varkhovsev. On our side, we had the former head of the Strategic Command, the guy who runs all our nuclear ICBMs and aircraft, uh, General Haviger. So it was a small group, about six or seven, but 
very senior, three and four star, retired, and uh, head of the GRU, head of the DIA, all retired. Um, and what do we do? We, we, we began getting together because we were concerned about uh, some issues that were common threats to our countries. We started with the issue of nuclear terrorism, but we quickly expanded to, to talk about anything that the two sides wanted to talk about. We talked about Islamic extremism way back in 2010 when we first started doing this. We talked about uh, uh, Crimea. When Crimea was happening, we were meeting in Morocco. You know, we meet in third countries because some of us can't get visas to each other's country or, or won't go back, you know, to Russia or to the U.S. because of uh, past experience. Um, but but we nevertheless, we would meet and continue meeting to talk about the issues that should be, that, that require both of our efforts, our joint efforts. Um, we think there are some. Uh, when we first started, we weren't really adversaries per se in the, in the sense that we are today. We were looking mostly at things where we could cooperate more on. Then after Crimea, uh, we were in the mode just simply trying not to go to war. You know, how, how do we keep ourselves, our two countries, from stumbling into war? So, I mean, whose, I whose idea was it <laughs> to start the Elva Group? Yeah, well, th that, I have to take credit for that or blame for that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, uh, when I was defense attache, when I was the head of the POW office, especially, and I met with Russian veterans and American veterans, and at the time, you know, American veterans were still coming over to celebrate the end of World War II, occasionally with Russian veteran counterparts. And, and I could see that, that this bond between military people and even and intelligence uh, professionals, there's a bond underneath the kind of whatever the adversarial situation is. There's a, mm -hmm. like a bond between boxers or fighters that, you know, that are in the ring. Um, and yes, uh, we're patriots to our country and we support our country. And if your country is, a, is uh, threatening our country, then stand back because we're going to defend. But at the same time, there was a respect and a kind of a bond there that, that transcended all of that. And I thought, we, if we had this kind of a grouping at, amongst military and intelligence veterans, then maybe we could add some value to the kind of dialogue that's going on about issues like nuclear conflict and nuclear terrorism. And I want there to be intelligence people because a lot of things in the nuclear world are very classified and, and the intelligence people in many ways control a big part of, of what our two countries are all about nuclear-wise. So mm -hmm. there had to be intel people there, too. I guess I wanted to – there's a couple of things I wanted to get into. You did also work in the um, – I'm not exactly sure what this was, but it's the Army Missile and Defense Command. Right, uh, Army Space and Missile Defense Command. My question is, do you see a little bit of a – competition for space going around i'm just saying that because i think it was yeah. maybe six months ago where i think putin said that well we're not really worried about use or developing some kind of shield because we have technology that can override that or we have these science fiction weapons that are coming out and and then president trump starts the um, space command is this feeling to you like we've got a little sputnik starting up again yeah, I think there is a, a kind of a, a coming to a point here that we are in the area of this, what people call the 
the space domain or the, the battle area of space or simply just the area of space. You know, for a long time, we've, we've tried to keep this non-military, primarily because neither of us wanted, had, had the money or the technology to exploit it, and we didn't, want, we didn't want it to become a battleground and suck money out of our budgets and so on. But also because I think we hoped that we could keep it uh, unmilitarized, basically kind of like Antarctica, you know, where we could... Mm-hmm. One space we don't have to worry about, and we can just do science and maybe focus on things that are good for everybody. But um, you know, the the reality is that a lot of uh, benefit that we get from being in space, just from the intel side or the sensor side, the ability to gather information on the other side, on what the other side is doing, it, it's it's just so such a rich trove of information that. We can't help ourselves. And so both sides, all sides, all countries have been, you know, putting sensors into space that help not only tell you what the weather is, but they help tell you what's going on in the nuclear forces of an opposing country. And now we're getting to the point where uh, sides are talking and considering putting weapons into space. Um, And uh, so, you know, I think think, uh, you're on to an important issue. I'm not sure if we have the, the national will or interest enough to sit down with our main adversaries, potential adversaries of China, Russia, in order to talk about how, what should we do, what limits should we put on ourselves in space. But um, if we don't, I think it's a very logical and, and likely step that we'll have weapons uh, in space in the near future in our lifetime. I want to talk a little bit about the most recent Elb Group meeting that you had in uh, March of this year. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you did agree on. I think there started, when you first started out, there was a little bit of a, there's a bit of difficulty. The American side had to walk out for a little bit. I wonder if you could describe that. Yeah. Well, so uh, like I said about Elb Group earlier, we, we, we try to treat each other with respect and openness, but we're not academics. We're not um, uh, hands across the water kind of people. We're all conservative patriots to our countries. They're architects of war in in, in Afghanistan, Chechnya, Iraq, and so on. Uh, the discussions can be very much pointed and uh, adversarial, especially when we're talking about sensitive issues like Ukraine, Crimea, Syria, nuclear, and so on. Um, one of the things that we do try to do those come up with a joint statement at the end of each of our meetings. Um, and, uh, that joint working on that joint statement can be confrontational too. This past time we met in Naples, you know, under the, under the gaze of Mount Vesuvius, which was maybe an omen of sorts. Uh, it didn't actually erupt the mountain, but things erupted inside the meeting. The, the Russians had come back to us with a text for the joint statement that included many, anti-American phrases, you know, the, the things like the American hegemon will, uh, you know, is responsible for the Arab Spring and the, and the, the, the color revolutions and, and fomenting uh, instability around the world. Well, the U.S. guys, uh, were, you know, reading this, hearing this, you know, I could read it in the Russian, but they were hearing it through the translators and 
some of these guys wanted to come across the table at him, and and uh, others were, you know, they they were, they were flabbergasted that this was still in the Russian that the Russians would even put this in the text and hand it to us because we were never going to sign anything that included that kind of wording. So we basically, I I called the timeout for the U.S. side because. I think we needed to get away from the table so we wouldn't, you know, have a fight. We went into another room. We were discussing how we were going to respond to this. And it looked pretty bad because it looked like we weren't going to be able to sign a joint statement and that who knows. We, we, we think we are talking professionally to each other. We think we can come back. But, you know, it's, it's, it can get ugly. So we weren't sure whether we were even going to be able to keep going on with the meeting. And there was a knock on the door. And one of the Russians came in. I won't say his name, but... He uh, was one of the more anti-American guys at the table throughout the mm-hmm. time that we were meeting. And he walked in, he said, look, they were very frank, but speaking in Russian, but he said, look, come on back in. We're going to take that crap out of the statement. That's what he called it, crap. We're going to take that crap out of the statement. We should never have put it in there. It's inflammatory. Uh, come back. We'll take it out. We'll sign this. Uh, we'll sign a different joint statement. And I was blown away, really, because he was the last guy I expected to walk through that door. I didn't expect any Russian to walk in, but he, he was the last guy. And so we basically said, looked at each other, and we said, okay, I guess we'll go back in. So we went back in, we finished, did, it, did the joint statement, finished it up. But that's an example of where we are on this. You know, the, the U.S. and the Russian side, and I think we reflect the greater, uh, the bigger administrations between uh, our two countries so the, you know that there are many things that we violently disagree on one of the things though that we we champion and that we I think is going to happen again uh, is that we need to have lines of communication you cannot you cannot have this kind of animosity and adversarial relationship and not be talking because then you get paranoid then you begin thinking what are they doing you know, what, what are they doing over there sure. behind the curtain, you know? Uh, we see them doing a snap exercise. I don't know what they're doing, sir. You know, I don't talk to them. You need to be mm-hmm. at least talking so you can call each other a son of a bitch if you need to do it, but at least you need to be able to talk so you can do it. Since Crimea, there actually has been less um, government-to-government right. talking. Have you noticed that since Crimea that, um, you know, meetings like the Elb Group are, are a little more important and i guess in saying that do you feel like there's somebody else whose questions are coming through this group i don't really know how to to best explain it well certainly our 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 meetings took on a more pointed frank and adversarial tone uh during and after crimea which was a reflection of our two countries relationship but also of our assessment of russian intentions and 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 actions you know we were less about cooperation and more about deterrence and when at the same time the two US government the US and the Russian government had basically stopped talking to each other at most levels we became an opportunity for messages to be sent back and forth if there were messages to be sent back and forth now I don't want to overstate our access to the US government or their access to their Russian government but we did meet with the members of the US government they were meeting with their senior leaders in the russian side before meetings so that we understood our uh u.s policies so we knew 
if we were going to say something as retired professionals that might deviate from a U.S. policy, we knew ahead of time what those were, and we could say to the Russians, you know, this is U.S. policy, but, you know, here's what we think is an opportunity for trying to repair cooperation against Islamic extremism. You know, those things we, we were very careful to do, having discussed and chatted with U.S. senior representatives. And then when we would come back from these meetings, we would tell our uh, government contacts what went on, what did we hear the Russians saying, what ideas are they talking about, providing them with some sort of a feedback. And our group is different Mm -hmm. from, we weren't the only group that was still meeting with the Russians in this time. There were few, few groups meeting, but we weren't the only one. But our group is different, unique, if you will, in that it's primarily, it is entirely military and intelligence people. And I'm positive we were the only intelligence grouping, you know, to have GRU and DIA people and FSB and CIA people. And we're the only ones uh, meeting to talk about intel and military issues. So, Are there, are there any examples of things that you gleaned just from maybe what they weren't yeah. saying or what they might have said by mistake? I mean, you did mention something about the veneer of stability yeah. in, in Russia. Sure. Well, the, the, the example you're talking about there is, you know, with this group, we, we don't bring spouses. We don't uh, we don't have distractions. We we come, we meet, uh, we arrive on day one. We we have a reception and a dinner together. Uh, for the next two days, we're in meetings. We take all our meals together. At the uh, af- after those two days, we write our joint statement, and then we. Uh, but please tell me, please tell me, there's a steam room. <laughs> there must be like a steam room. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just I just pictured that you guys sitting around in towels, and I, mumbling I, in Russian to each other. Yeah, no, there's not a steam room, but but there are, right. but there are meals together, and and there's drinking mm-hmm. together. You know, I mean, a, a beer or something. So, uh, so you you get an opportunity to hear not only the uh, prepared statements at the uh, you know during the meetings, and the discussions. You know, the unprepared statements or the discussions in the ad lib discussions during the meetings, but you also get to talk over dinner, you know, and, and, and over a drink or something. And, and, uh, you know, in this last meeting in Naples, uh, and again, these guys are patriots. They, they, they love president Putin. They love their country and they support Putin and his policies a hundred percent, except that they lament the level of corruption in Russia and the inability of Russia and political system to deal with that and to um, to remove that that very big problem that even Putin talks about you know the I mean a lot of people suspect Putin to be corrupt official number one but be that as as it may he he talks about corruption being the biggest threat to Russia internal or external and and these guys think the same way so so they're concerned about their own country, and they they let us hear those kinds of things in I'll say in the uh, in the downtime between sessions and meetings. Um, another thing that's important to uh, take away is that uh, there's really no difference between Russian propaganda, what we call Russian propaganda, and what the security and intelligence elites believe in Russia. Oh, this was interesting. You were talking about that. It's, it's not, they don't, you know, say something like, well, America 
caused Crimea or America is behind the uh, the overthrow of the uh, the Ukrainian government. They don't say that in public and then sit in their living room at night saying, oh, boy, you know, well, we know the real, real truth about that, you know, but they, they believe that. And so when we as Americans read and hear Russian news and articles and we say, well, that's just propaganda. There's no way they can actually believe that. Uh, they do. They can and they do believe it. And I think it's important for us to understand that when we talk to them. It'd be interesting to have a little sketch to see what Americans sound like to Russians. Well, we sound like a bunch of rich kids, you know, who, who never really had to work hard. And, uh, you know, we, we were sort of born on third base, as the baseball players say, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of thing. You're out there in L.A., you know, I could use a Hollywood uh, analogy or metaphor, you know. That, <laughs> Go ahead. Eagle Rock, actually, but, you know, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> my, that's my attempt to distance myself. But you live amongst them, let's say. And, uh, sure. And there's, uh, you know, even Americans from the Midwest will say, well, you know, gee, I like what the actor or that actress, you know, looks like. I like their clothes. I like, I like what they, you know, the movie – but I don't want to be like them. You know, I don't like the way they live their life. You know, the, the Russians think about Americans, I think, some ways in that way. You know, we like what you're wearing. We like what you, your songs, your, your movies, your, but we think you've lost your moral compass. We think you're on the wrong track in a lot of ways. July 16th is this, is this summit with, with, Putin and Trump that's been scheduled. Right. I wanted to ask you a little bit like what your recommendations would, would be. Well, so uh, that's a great question because after our Naples meeting and, and really for the last, so all of our meetings, but especially since Crimea, we have made these recommendations just to those people. The, our, our memo from our last uh, meeting, our internal memo, not the joint statement, but our, our own assessment of what's important and what the two countries should be doing has gone to the highest levels of our government, not not to the president, but to the uh, secretaries of this and the directors of that uh, agency and so on. So, And in those uh, uh, recommendations, number one, and first and foremost, is that we have said you need to have an established good set of communications, not just the ability for the Secretary of Defense to call the Minister of Defense, which exists today, and for the mm-hmm. chairman to call the chief of the general staff. That exists. But you need, you know, a constant, continuous, open communication at the colonel level uh, uh, that is, uh, you know, so that they can call and talk to each other uh, about ongoing operations or uh, to, in order to deconflict our forces that might be operating in close proximity. That in Syria. So we have that ability to do that in Syria. That's something that we've been advocating even before it happened. Uh, so we were glad to see that. But that's number one. And the, and the idea behind that is to prevent uh, an accident from escalating into a war. And then number two is is to, to work together on those issues which require our joint effort to solve. Islamic extremism is one of them. Fighting ISIS and fighting al-Qaeda, that takes more than just the United States. And and that's not the Elba group's insight. That's something that both countries have said before when our relations were better. But we've just kind of mm-hmm. forgotten it since Crimea. We need to get back into doing that. I think those would be the top two things that, 
that we've recommended before, that we have recommended this time. And I think those things, we, we should expect to see those things come out of this next uh, meeting between Putin and Trump. I think he's going to direct the militaries to do more together and, mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, he's going to reinforce uh, the U.S.-Russian interest in jointly fighting uh, Islamic terrorism. You bring up the topic of cyber and meddling with the election and um, what the Russians actually did. I mean, how do you bring up some an issue like that at the table yeah. with the Elb Group? And, and what, what did you kind of glean from their responses? Well, uh, the way we approach really contentious issues like the election meddling and cyber attacks and so on is, is, is uh, in our meetings we have say on any topic, we'll have a prepared statement by some representative from the U.S. side and then a prepared statement by some representative from the Russian side. So uh, one of our guys will get the task to write something that maybe represents our uh, assessment of what's going on in, in a certain uh, domain. And so we did that on uh, on the cyber issue. That We've actually been doing cyber uh, since um, 2015 in Torgau. You know, the Russians, interestingly enough, the Russians were the ones that first suggested cyber be on our agenda. And and then they brought to the meeting a former head of their FAPC organization, which is like our NSA, our National Security Agency. Why do you think they were the first? Uh, that's a great question. I think that... Um, this is Kevin Ryan's opinion now, but I think that they uh, had begun and and had been doing a lot of cyber work, anti-Western, anti-American cyber work, maybe mostly intelligence gathering, but were on the cusp of actually doing some active cyber meddling, uh, an example of which would be the elections. Back in 2015, they were already at that level that it was beginning to creep toward the surface of publicity. And so they, I think they thought, let's raise it at this Elba Group meeting. Let's get the Americans talking about it. Uh, because if we're doing this at this level, the Americans must be doing something similar, you know, or, or even more just sounds to me like this this is like a live chess game that's going on like they might have brought that up just to see how much yeah you know that's right and and i i believe that that's kevin ryan's assessment maybe a couple mm -hmm. other members of the team believe that too um and i uh i think we we're we are in some small way a part of that uh bigger chess match um so and and then we try, from our perspective, from our side, to deliver our own messages and and to understand what we can about the Russian intentions and capabilities from our discussions with them. But so that's how we approach cyber initially. And then, of course, after the election meddling, it became much more open and adversarial. And uh, uh, the Russians, of course, they deny any meddling. They they joke, you know, we can't even run our own elections properly. Uh, you know, that's their inside joke. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, well, how can you expect us that we're, uh, we could affect the great American election? Uh, but the American side uh, pushed back and said, no, 
first you need to stop what you're doing and then we, we need to discuss uh, a way forward so that we can uh, stop you know we can draw certain limits and ba- you know guidelines for how we're going to work because uh, mm-hmm. we don't want to get into a uh, I, first of all I, I have much more faith and confidence in American technology and capability to work in the cyber area than the Russians and I think the Russians think the same thing I think they think is as successful as they've been that they're they're a a triple a ball club compared to the uh, major league American capability or ability to to bring resources to bear it's just that we haven't done it maybe yet or or what we're doing is is at such a low level that it's not tipping the balance yet but I, I have no doubt that the U.S. could win a cyber conflict with Russia. I guess one of the things I'm fishing for was uh, you mentioned uh, the Russians were saying that these tools, that these cyber tools that are in the, whether in the possession of the military or their Department of Defense, they can't actually just be wielded by the military, that there's some other authority. That's, yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you reminded me. The, so the Russians are, have been talking about ways to regulate either in the international arena or in a bilateral way to, to set up rules of the road, rules of engagement, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's part of the reason why I say that, that the Russians recognize that they're a, uh, you know, that they're not, they don't have the depth, let's say, that America does in its resources to fight in this domain. If the United States were to go full bore cyber capabilities, uh, we would, we would snow the Russians under. Um, so the Russians are interested in coming up with rules of the road so that they can prevent us from doing maybe some of the most damaging or harmful things to them that we could do. And I think they're willing to give up the ability or the initiative to do some things against us if they could be convinced that we likewise could not do it to them. You mentioned that some of the um, other American presidents, like Clinton or, or Obama, they didn't have a very good relationship with, with President Putin. I, that You said they took things a little more personally. You said that there's an opportunity with Trump and his relationship with Russia or what he kind of aspires to, and I was just wondering if you could explain that. Sure. Well, you know, both uh, President Obama and Secretary Clinton, they, they had tried to establish a relationship with Putin that would allow them to reset, if you will, the relationship and get us on a better footing. But they both ended up, you know, convinced that there was no way to do that with President Putin, and and I think in the end uh, the the relationship was soured even at a personal level. One of the things that uh, candidate Trump and now President Trump has done by his kind of very you know positive comments about Putin and and openness to meet with Russia and to talk with Russia is he's turned that relationship upside down and in a way he's created leverage for himself because now Putin actually wants to meet with he, Putin couldn't have cared less about meeting with Obama and Clinton and and uh, but Putin wants to meet with Trump and mm-hmm. and and uh, Trump apparently wants to meet with Putin so there that's going to happen now that the question is can does does our president have a plan to get some benefit from this meeting to get you know this this meeting is 
already a win for Putin. It's, it's something he's desperately wanted for quite a while. The Russians at the Elba Group were telling us this even when Trump was still a candidate. So uh, this is a big concession, if you will, from the West and from the U.S. to have this meeting with Putin. So the question now is, what can Trump get out of it? What can the U.S. get out of it? What do we want from Russia in exchange for this meeting and, and for this open, reopened dialogue? And is there a plan? Does Trump and his administration have a plan to get that, to leverage this meeting, to get those things? That part, that second part, I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. Uh, people can have their doubts about it. I have a hope that maybe there is something, but I don't know. But Trump has created this this leverage, and that's to his credit. Um, now the question is, how does he use it? That's the question we're all asking right now. We're going to find out in the 17th July. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to find out if he had a plan. Exactly. General Ryan, and I have to call you General. I went to West Point. I'm sorry if I don't. <laughs> if I, don't. Um, I, I just, I just want to say that um, I just really admire your work and your career, but everything that you've done. I'm, and even though right now you're in, you're comfortable, I think in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Yeah, your work, your work is never done. And um, I wanted to thank you for your service and your continuing service. Mark, I have the same uh, respect and the comments back to you. I respect your service and what you're doing through this podcast and and uh, well, I'm going back over to Moscow at the end of July and I'll tell General Kulikov and the others that said hello uh, and <laughs> yeah I'll, please do I'll see if I'll see if we get one of them to come on the podcast and and refute everything that I've already said about the uh, Alpha group oh that'd be great <laughs> what was his joke that you said he had when the relationship was really bad between the two countries and we were kind of standing at the brink of a war he, he, his joke, which he's a great guy, a great joke, and he says, he says the collective farm leader gathered all the comrades together, and he said, comrades, for a long time now we have stood at the precipice, but today we take a step forward, and, <laughs> and we're all laughing, you know, because his 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 warning was, you know, be careful when you when you take a step forward, when you when you think you're doing something that's moving you forward, you might be walking off the cliff. End of transmission.